If you'd grab your Bibles, please. <clears throat> Thank you, buddy. He was so excited about that, wasn't he? <clears throat> grab your Bibles and go to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. I had another psalm planned for this morning, but the more I went back to this one and looked at it, the more I just felt like it was um, very fitting for, um, for our congregation right now. Psalm chapter 90, I know you just sat down, but if you would uh, give reverence to reading this living and powerful word, stand if you have the means and you're able. If you need to remain seated, just stay seated, whatever you, um, whatever you need to do. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 90, and as I always tell you, if you have a Bible, you have it on your phone, something, have your eyes on it. Um, you're not going to hear anything from me this morning. <laughs> Everything you will hear will be directly from God Himself. And so you're going to see it from Him as we go through it. So keep your eyes on the living Word of God. Psalm chapter 90, it says at the beginning, the title in my Bible reads, From Everlasting to Everlasting. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1 says, Lord, You have been our refuge or our dwelling place in all our generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. They are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed or we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, maybe 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. Then they are soon gone and we fly away. But who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You can be seated. I'm sniffling a little bit this morning. I, I had my second vaccination shot um, Thursday, I think it was. And so I've still got some of the... If y'all have had it, you know what I'm talking about. But don't don't get scared of me. It's okay. <clears throat> so, um, but in Psalm chapter 90 here, we have Moses's prayer, his um, his emotions, if you will, of um, all of the dealings with death that he has had to deal with. You know, over the past, I just sit down last night and I was just thinking about over the past two years of um, 
the fact that in the past two years, we have had no choice. God has left us with no, no choice in the matter except to face the reality of death head on. Um, I sat down last night and just started counting all of our church members that we've lost in just the last two years. And, and, and there have been so many. I've got them wrote down right here. I'm not going to go through all of them. But there have been so many that we have had no choice but to deal with. And then, not to mention just that, but um, some of people's uh, mothers and fathers and some people's uh, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. It's just, it seems like there's been so much death that we have had to deal with. Today, we get the privilege of hearing from the Word of God how Moses worked through his emotions as he had no choice but to face the reality of death in such a way that um, you and I will never even imagine. I want you to think about just for a second because this psalm we believe and are pretty certain that it was written in the context of the wilderness journey. And so you, you might remember that in that wilderness journey that basically there was somewhere around, they said, maybe one and a half million to two million people that crossed over the Red Sea and went into the wilderness with Moses. Now, Numbers chapter... Um, 14 verse 21 through 23 tells us that once they got over in here that they basically didn't believe God that He was going to bring them into this promised land. And this is what God said to this one and a half to two million people. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. Now this is important because I want you to think about what Moses had to endure in this wilderness period. None, God says, none of the men... And he's talking here, he tells us later that he's talking about the people who were of the age of accountability. He actually calls it people who are of the age to know the difference between right and wrong. Anyone at that age and above, they will not get to see. An entire generation has to die in the... This is one of the main reasons why they wandered in this wilderness for 40 years. It wasn't because God just wanted to take them on a little trip. No, it was they were waiting for an entire generation to die. Now, Numbers chapter 1 verse 46 tells us, because we don't know the exact number, but there was a census taken, and this is what it tells us about the men who were able to go to war. And if you were to go and read the previous verses, you'll see that that's what this number is. But of all the men that were able to go to war, all those listed were 603,550. Now that's just men who are able to go to war. Okay? So let's just be very conservative this morning and just take that number. We're not including the women. We're not including the young people that, that were of the age to know right and wrong. We're just going to take that number right there. 
If we take that number right there and you do the math, they were in the wilderness for how many years? You divide that number by 40 years and you come up with 15,000 deaths per year. Per year. Now let's take that number and divide it by 365, which that's how many days are in a year. And this is how many deaths you come up with per day. 41 deaths per day. This is what Moses has to deal with. Now we know, I'm not, this just an average. There may have been some days that nobody died, but there were some days that over a hundred died. There were some days thousands died. But the bottom line is this. In an average, you were averaging at least 41 deaths per day, and guess who is presiding over every one of those funerals? Moses. Moses, the man of God. And now here he is at in this context when he writes this psalm. Not only that, but he's had to deal with the death of his sister, Miriam. He's had to deal with the death of his brother, Aaron. As now he's also fixing to have to deal with his own death. As God tells Moses, even you are not going to get to lead these people into the promised land. I'm going to let you see it but I'm not going to let you enter in with them. And he has to deal with his own death. And so this is the context that we're dealing with right here. So let's go to this psalm right now and let's look at how Moses just expressed, because that's what the psalms are written for. The, the whole purpose of a psalm was this was the way they expressed praise or this was the way they expressed mourning. This, the whole purpose of writing every psalm is that this is the way that they take the emotions that they're feeling and they get them out. It's kind of like what we do with songs and music today. We try to find some kind of song that is able to, to give um, meaning to our emotions and we want to uh, give some kind of expression to what we're feeling. And so this is what Moses does in this, is he unleashes his emotions about what he's feeling about death in general and how much he's faced it. And so in verse 1, what we get here is what Moses has learned about his ancestors. And you're going to see every bit of this is Moses talking about all that he has learned. And how many of you know that we don't really know anything until we go through some dark times, do we? It's in your trials, it's in your dark valleys that you actually learn some things. And here Moses starts talking about some things that he's learned. The first thing he says is, this is what I have learned about my ancestry. Notice what he says in verse 1. Lord, you have been our refuge or our dwelling place in all generations. And here I believe Moses is thinking back on his ancestors and how they looked to God for their refuge. They looked to God for their safety, their security. So basically, he thinks back to Abraham and how Abraham was called out of a land that was very rich, out of his father's house that was very rich, and he leaves everything and he goes on a journey to a land that he don't even know where it's at, but he just trusts God through it. And he goes through a wilderness time himself until God finally brings Abraham into a land that he promised that he would give him. And so he thinks back at how Abraham made God his refuge and then he looks at Isaac the same way and you can go back and read the story of Isaac and see that Isaac's journey was very similar. 
Then you can go back and you can read about Jacob and Esau and you can see that their journey was very similar. Then you can go and read about how um, um, Jacob's children, he got changed his, God changed his name to Israel and he had the 12 tribes of Israel, but one of them there was a little boy named Joseph. Y'all remember the story of Joseph? And then he looks back and I'm sure he's thinking about how Joseph's brother, his own brother sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt, and yet all the way Joseph trusted God. No matter where he landed, prison, on, the, on death row, it didn't matter. He trusted God. He made God his refuge. And then Moses sits and he thinks about how God saved an entire nation from famine because he sent Joseph through all of that. And then he even looks at the 400 years in Egypt and understands that that was God saving them from famine and providing for them and taking care of them. And he just looks back and he says, God, you have been our refuge. You have been our dwelling place for all of our generations. And ultimately what you have here is a declaration of faith from Moses here to say that even now, at 15,000 deaths a year, minimum. 41 deaths a day, minimum. In hunger, in thirst, in wilderness journeys, even now, you're still our refuge. Even now, we still trust you. All our generations have trusted you. I'm not going to stop now. Is basically what Moses says. In verse 2, we move to, to Moses' next point. And we see what Moses has learned about God. So our second point this morning that we're looking at is what Moses has learned about God. And everything I give you from here on out will be sub-points if you're taking notes under this heading. What Moses has learned about God. This comes from verses 2 all the way through 10. So let's look at verse 2 and see what's the first thing that Moses has learned about God. Before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, Moses had not just learned something about his ancestry, but Moses had also learned something about God that even his ancestors didn't know. And I'll prove that to you here in a minute. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14, we have the account to where God introduces Himself to Moses. And He's trying to get Moses to go to Pharaoh, and you know the story, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But then Moses says, but what if when I go, and then I go to Israel and tell them this is what God's doing, what if Israel asks me, who is this God? Because note that in Egypt, they had all kind of gods. If you go back and do a little research on the plagues of Egypt, whether it was flies or frogs or locusts or blood in the water, or whatever it was, all of those were representative of a specific God that Egypt served. And ultimately, what God was doing there was showing Israel and Egypt that these are not gods. I am the only true God. And so whenever Moses first meets God and he asks God, who am I supposed to tell them that you are? Because they have this God and this is His name, and they have this God and this is His name, and this God and this is His name. Who are you? 
And here's what God says to Moses. Or Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is His name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Talks to Moses first, okay? Moses, I am who I am. And ultimately what we understand is here's what he said to Moses. Moses, I am the self-existing one. That's what the word I am means in Hebrew. It means that I exist. In other words, I am the one from whom everything else gets its existence. If it weren't for me, nothing and no one would exist. I am who I am. And he said, now say this to the people of Israel. Now he's telling Moses, this is what you say to them about what my name is. You tell them, I am has sent me to you. Literally, you tell them this, the self-existing God has sent you to them. The God from whom everything gets its existence has sent me. Now listen, in, in Exodus chapter 6, we see that God has never revealed Himself like this to the people, to His forefathers, to His ancestors. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand He will send them out, and with a strong hand He will drive them out of His land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. There we have that I am again. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now here we get another name of God. If you were to read this in the Hebrew, it would say Elohim or El Shaddai, I believe is actually what it says. And it just simply means Almighty God. That's all they knew about God was that He was a God who was Almighty. There was no God more powerful than Him. But they didn't know anything else about God. But by my name, the Lord, or again, you could translate this, I am. By my name, the Lord, I am, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Let me put all this together for you. Here's the point. God is telling Moses and He's telling all of His people that He is fixing to deliver out of. You need to understand something. I am the only God that there is. Every other God that Egypt worships and serves, they're not gods. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you that everything that exists, even Pharaoh, has his existence from me. And I'm going to prove to you that I am the only one that exists from everlasting 
to everlasting. Now this is so confusing for us. You know why this is confusing for us? Because only the only thing that we know is everything has a beginning. Any of your kids in here ever ask the question, where did God come from? Where did God come from? And you know why they asked that age-old question? Because everything has a beginning. That's all that we know. Everything comes from something. But what you need to understand is that God is the creator of time. God is the creator of space. And God is the creator of all matter. Now this this includes everything that's created. Genesis 1.1. Let me take you back to that verse. You should know it by heart. In the what? What do you have there? Hang on. No, you have time. Time begins. That's why it says in the beginning. God creates the starting point. Time. In the beginning, God created the what? The heavens. Now you have space because you need somewhere to put the creation. First off, there has to be time. There has to be a beginning. Then there has to be space in order to put the creation. And so God creates the heavens. You have space. And then in the heavens, what does He create next? In the earth. Now you have matter in space. And so all of the matter begins to be created in the space that God created at the time that God created. Now what you have here is God existing outside of His creation. He's not constrained by it. Imagine for a minute, um, if you will, this projector right here. This projector is putting words on this screen, right? Now somebody created this, correct? Is that creator inside of this? Where is it? Where is he or she? Where are they? They're not constrained by their creation, are they? They exist outside of what they have created. And this is true for all of the creation. What you have to understand this morning is that God is the only one that is self-existing. He is the great I Am, the self-existing one. Everything that has, that has been created gets its existence from Him. And if it continues to exist, it's because He allows it to continue to exist. And God revealed this to Moses, that God is the only one. Again, read verse 2 again. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are the great I Am. You are God. Next thing in verse 3, he, he learns about God, that God has cursed His creation because of sin. And again, he's thinking back. He's thinking back on his ancestors. He's thinking back on what God has taught him about who He is. And now he's thinking back on Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And Moses is the author of Genesis too, by the way. But he says, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses is thinking back on where God commanded the self-existing one. God created all this and because the, the creation rebelled against him, he looked at it and he said, to the dust you shall return. So again, these are things that Moses knows. We're going to put it all together here in a minute, but just keep up with it. All right. So he knows that God has cursed his creation. Next, in verse 4 through 6, here's the next thing that Moses knows about God. He knows that a lifetime for man, no matter how long it is, is but a moment in God's sight. Now look at verse 4 again. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. What does he mean? Why did he pick a thousand years? How many of you actually know somebody that's lived a thousand years? I didn't think there'd be a hand. <clears throat> but Moses did. He knew at least of his ancestors that had lived to be a thousand years old. Remember, he's thinking about his ancestors. He's thinking about what he's learned about God. And now he's thinking about people that even get to live to be a thousand years old. Can you imagine it? <clears throat> Adam, I think it was, I wrote him down, lived to be 930 years old. Noah lived to be 950 years old. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. Figured y'all to remember that. They lived what we would consider a very long life, right? But here, Moses has learned something. Even if you were blessed like his ancestors to live for a thousand years in your sight, they are like, and then he starts giving us word pictures to express what, what it's actually like in comparison to God's eternity. So in other words, if you were lived, if you were able to live to be a thousand years old to God, it would be like, first thing, yesterday when it is past. What can you do about yesterday? It's gone. It's past. You can't do anything about it no matter how hard you try, no matter how bad you want to. It's past. That's what it's like. That's what a thousand years of life are like to God. All right? Now, next, he says, it's like a watch in the night. Now, in this day and time, in the night, they would have three watches. They would usually be from... Sunset to 10 p.m. would be the first watch from 10 p.m. to, um, I think, 2 a.m. I think is what it is, would be the second watch. And then from 2 a.m. to sunrise, I believe, was the third watch. But the point being is that a watch was four hours. A night watch was four hours. And here he says that if you could live to be a thousand years old to God, that would still be like a four-hour watch through the night, and it's gone. A thousand years of life. Then he moves on to verse 5, and he says, it would be like something that a flood sweeps away. You ever seen a flash flood? And what happens when it comes through? What does it do to anything that's in its way? It's gone. No matter what it is, it wipes it out. It's out of the way. 
And then he says that a thousand years are like a dream or they're like grass that is renewed in the morning and then by evening time it withers away. And in this culture, it was nothing in the Middle East for a little sprout of grass to spring up in the morning and it looks like it's flourishing, but once that, that Middle East sun hits it, you know what happens to it by the evening time? It withers and it fades away. And Moses is using these pictures to help us understand that even a thousand years of life, which some have lived to be that long, are still so fast. <clears throat> now, the next thing that we learn in verse 7 through 9 is that God is judging us for our sin in the hopes that we will fear Him and turn back to Him in obedience. Verse 7. For we, notice it starts with the word for. In other words, this is the reason why God does this. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed or we are terrified. And the point here is that no matter how long we live, we are all brought to an end eventually by the anger of God on sin by the wrath of God on sin, by the judgment of God. And it is meant to terrify you. Is there anybody in here, just be honest with me, death scares you. No, <laughs> Liars. <laughs> Liars. Don't get me wrong, as Christians, I understand, I do. Death as in Christians, yes, death should be literally something that welcomes us into eternal life. I get that. But come on and be honest with me for a minute. Does death not scare you? Death is scary. It is scary. And the point of the fear of death is meant for us to be terrified and point us back to this is God's anger towards sin. This is God's wrath towards sin. It's God's mercy, actually. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Remember, He's the great I Am. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And He has determined, listen to this, He has determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. You know what that means? He has determined your beginning and He has determined your end. He determined it. And He determined the boundaries of your dwelling. He knows if you will ever leave Giles County, Tennessee. He knows if you will ever make it to California or to wherever. The point of it is, is this. He knows that inside of you there is something that says there's something else out there. And He's put something inside of you that says, but you will only ever go this far. Why did He do this? Why did he, why did He mark a beginning and an end for you? And why did He do this? Look, that. In other words, this is why He did, does it. 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and what? Find Him. God wants you to look at death. God wants you to look at the trials and the suffering of this world and He wants you to be terrified at His wrath and His anger so that you will seek Him and perhaps feel your way toward Him. In other words, the, I love the way the King James Version puts this. He, he says it, grope for Him, literally. It means to search for blindly. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're looking for, but you know there's something else out there. There's something greater. And God wants us to seek Him and search for Him, and He wants us to find Him. Why? Because He is actually not far from each one of us. He's not that far away. So, yes, God has judged us for our sin, but it is in the hopes that we will fear Him and turn back to Him in obedience. And now I want you to think about it for a minute. Moses and the men of Israel, the people of Israel, have seen so much of this. They have seen the ground open up and swallow thousands at a time. They have seen um, uh, the um, Egyptian plagues. You know how many people died in those? The firstborn of Every firstborn son of every Egyptian died in that one. They have seen the Red Sea close over top of the entire Egyptian army and swallow them whole. They have seen um, they they have seen the um, the snakes come out in the wilderness and start killing people. They've seen plague in the wilderness start killing people. They have seen an entire generation die out in the wilderness and not be able to enter the promised land. And so they have seen the judgment of God. They know, and it should be leading them to fear. And then in verse 10, I'll speed this up, verse 10. Here's what we get, we learn about God next. God has made our lives even shorter than our ancestors. Notice what he says in verse 10. The years of our life are not a thousand years like theirs. Remember, what was a thousand years like to God? A watch in the night like a flood that gets swept away. But our lives are not even a thousand years. If, if a thousand years to God is like a watch in the night or like yesterday when it's past, what do you think a life of 70 or 80 years is? You see the point that Moses is making here? In other words, he's pleading with the people that's listening. Think about this. You have 70, maybe by reason of strength, 80 years. Some people, maybe a little more. Some people, maybe a little less. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how much time you have, you're not even going to make it to a thousand years. And a thousand years to God is like yesterday when it's past. And so we have to make sure that we think about it. So verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. The span of them is hard work and trouble. Y'all thought about that? My daddy worked 63 years or 40 something years. I mean, he was a kid, but, but 63 years he got to retire. 
going to play golf for the rest of his life. You know how long he got to enjoy it? Three months. He died at 63 in three months. Gone. Just like that. It was full of toil and trouble, and it was gone. And then notice what he says next. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And then look at verse 11, because here we get what Moses has learned about people. This is what Moses has learned about people in verse 11. He asked a question. Who considers the power of your anger and the power of your wrath according to the fear of you? You know what he asked there? Who really thinks about this? I mean, come on, guys. How many of you believe that you've got tomorrow? We do. You know how I know? Because your life would look a lot different if you didn't believe you had tomorrow and today you're going to meet Jesus. You live every day like you think you've got tomorrow. Church, can I please ask you to do what Moses is saying here? Consider. Consider the fact that even if you were to live a thousand years, it is still gone so fast. So fast. And so consider it. What does it mean to consider something? Think on it. Meditate on it. And if you will consider that you might have 70, maybe if by reason of strength, 80 years, maybe. And then it's gone and we soon fly away. Wouldn't it be a very good idea for us to think about that and ask the question, what's next? What's next? What happens next? So here's what Moses says when he's learned about people that, and here's what he's learned if you take a notes. Not many really consider the power of God's judgment so that they fear Him. Because again, if it would lead them to fear Him, you know what the proverb says about the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? It would be healthy for you to look at the judgment of God. It would be healthy for you to look death in the face and say to yourself, okay, this is coming. So what is next? So here's what he says next in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We need to be taught to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. See, this is not a wisdom that comes naturally. We have to be taught to number our days. So I just close with this right here. How does God teach us to number our days? How does He do it? Well, the first thing He does is He lets us experience death around us. He lets you see the death of loved ones around you. And as you experience more and more of it, you learn to number 
your days. You learn to number your days. You begin to consider it. Remember, that was the problem. How many actually consider this? And you know what the answer to that is? Not many. Not enough. Not enough. So as bad as we hate to face death, as bad as we hate to see times like these, can I just be honest with you and tell you it's actually God's mercy to you? Because now you get to consider it. Now you get to consider it and you get to really think about your 70 years if you get that or maybe your 80 years if you get that. And as you consider it, hopefully it will lead you to fear the Lord and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second way that God teaches us how to number our days and get a heart of wisdom by considering how weak and fragile our lives actually are. Fellas, we think we're strong, don't we? <laughs> we do. We think we're tough. I do. I have. Can I just go on and confess that to you this morning? I used to. Oh, I used to. You're right. God's teaching me. God's teaching me. Man, I thought I was tough. I'm a man. That's what I am. That's who God made me to be. I've always thought I was tough. But did you know something as small as a microorganism can bring me down? Let me give you just an idea of how small I'm talking. 500 million of the rhinoviruses that cause the common cold, 500 million of those viruses you could fit on the head of a pen or a needle. 500 million. And one of them can take your life. Do you not understand that? You think you're strong. We think we can overcome anything. We think that we can beat anything. And what you don't understand is that you are actually weak. This body is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you are actually weak. And this body is so fragile. And when you take the time to consider how we are brought to an end so easily, so easily, if you take the time to consider that, you will begin to learn to number your days. Number three, the aging process. This is my last one. This is how God teaches us to number our days, the aging process. Old Jeff Mathis, big old boy. Look at him back there. He's tough, strong. He walked through the door this morning. He said, whoo, man, I'm so ready for some spring or summer weather. He said, I just can't take this cold like I used to. I said, brother, you're getting older. He said, this whole body can't take it like it used to. Y'all know what he's talking about? Anybody? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. This will be the, um, the last little bit. In verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, <clears throat> this was written to teach and reveal the uselessness and depression that results from seeking happiness in worldly things. All right? Look what he says to us here, the wisdom we get from it. 
Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. They're coming, okay? But now look at verse 2 because he starts describing the aging process. And I'll go through this quickly because this could be a whole sermon. But first thing he says, think about your Creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In other words, the days don't get better, but they get worse. Remember your Creator now, before this happens. And before the day, in verse 3, when the keepers of the house, talking about the arms and the hands that protect, when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, talking about the legs, and the grinders cease. What do you think the grinders are? And the grinders cease because why? <laughs> now we've kind, of, we've kind of learned with technology how to overcome some of this today, right? How many of y'all got false... T- Don't answer that. <laughs> some of y'all spit them out at me. <clears throat> and those who look through the windows are dimmed. The eyesight fails. And the doors on the street are shut. In other words, the communication with the outside is cut off. You've been to a nursing home lately? When the sound of the grinding is low, literally, you can't hear what's happening outside anymore. In Guatemala, we know when the women go to the mill because we can hear the the pup mill start up. And we know... When they're there, we can hear and we can tell what's going on outside. But they can't hear anymore. And when one rises up at the sound of a bird, you can't sleep sound anymore, but a bird wakes you up. Anybody feeling any of this yet? The aging process. And all the daughters of song are brought low, either your voice or the birds that you can't that you can't even really hear as a joyful thing anymore, I believe is what he's talking about. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high. You know why they're afraid of what's high? Because they might fall. They're afraid of what is high. And terrors are in the way. They're scared of so many things because this whole body can't do what it used to do. The almond tree blossoms. Talking about the white hair there. The grasshopper drags itself along. You know what a grasshopper used to do? He ain't jumping no more. It drags itself along. And desire fails. I don't have to explain that one to you. Or maybe I do. I don't know. That's another lesson. And you know why? Because man is going to his eternal home. You're traveling toward it. And the mourners go about the streets. In other words, they're getting ready for a funeral because it's coming. Think about the Creator before the silver cord is snapped. Now He's talking about death. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. Again, it's done. And finally... Verse 7, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The point is this. The aging process should teach you to number your days. Listen, I'm only 40, 
42 years old. I'm only 42 years old. Fixing to be 43 though, ain't I? That's right. I'm only 42 years old, but can I tell you something? I can tell that this old body ain't what it once was. I know that. Last night, I had to get up and take five ibuprofen because I hurt so bad laying on the bed. My hip hurts. Who wakes up? What 42-year-old wakes up at 1 o'clock in the morning to take ibuprofen because your hip hurts? And so, you know, these old bodies just... They are aging and they're falling apart and they're going back from the dust from which they came. And the aging process should teach you to number your days. And when you learn to number your days, you'll learn to have a heart of wisdom and you will use your time wisely and you will take your refuge in God because you've thought about what's next and you will begin to walk in obedience to Him Follow Him because you're preparing for what's next. And that's how you'll know if you've learned to number your days. If you are not taking your refuge in God and preparing for what's next, if you are not walking in obedience and trying to follow Him by faith and live for Him, you have not learned to number your days. And I want to tell you today that there is no better day than today than to see the reality of it, to face it head on, to number your days and get a heart of wisdom. That's what this is about. If y'all would stand this morning. I have these questions to end with. First off, can you see the judgment of God in this world and does it bring fear to you? If it doesn't, you're a fool. I don't say that to demean you. I say it because it's the truth. If it doesn't, you're a fool. Second question, if you have, are you seeking Him to be your refuge? Third question, have you repented of your sin and believed on Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you say, Lord, I know it's coming. And Lord, I want to be ready. I want to repent of my sin and I want to follow you.